Couch Wisdom. Couch Wisdom. Hey, this is Jordan Rothline from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, Red Bull Radio's podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Their name says it all, Masters at Work. Little Louis Vega and Kenny Dope Gonzalez have spent more than 20 years together, shepherding dance music down new paths with their inventive productions and imaginative feel for different musical forms. Synonymous with the rise and peak of New York City house music, Kenny and Louis met through their mutual friend Todd Terry, resulting in a fruitful production partnership full of timeless hits. With remixes being their specialty, the Masters at Work treatment has been given to a diverse roster of artists, from Madonna, Debbie Gibson, and Lisa Stansfield, to St. Etienne, Michael Jackson, Brand New Heavies, and about 800 other artists. They defiantly mix everything they can find, house, hip-hop, funk, disco, Latin, African, and jazz, into a universal groove. In this episode of Couch Wisdom, recorded at the 2013 Red Bull Music Academy in New York, the dance floor dons discussed everything from their famed remixes to their work as New York and Soul. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. Whatever it is, Louis Vega and Kenny Dope put the icing on the cake. So please give them a very warm welcome. So yeah, we don't want to talk about where house music started, but we want to talk about where Masters at Work started. So, Well, Masters at Work started in Brooklyn. You know, um, originally it was uh, my crew, and we did parties, neighborhood parties, in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, and um, that was the set in the beginning. 50 people, 75 people, 100. That's basically where it started from at that point. Uh, me and Mike Delgado did those parties, and then um, Todd Terry used to come to those parties. That's how we met Todd, and, and you know, then Todd introduced me to, to Louie later on. But yeah, you know, after doing all those parties and carrying speakers and all that kind of stuff, it came to a point where I didn't want to do that anymore, and I wanted to start doing records and start getting into that and, and into beats. And I would go to Todd's uh, house. I would cut out of school and, and go to Todd's house and, and watch him produce records and make beats and stuff like that. And, and that was the beginning, you know, pretty much. In 1987, 88, that's when I was getting my feet wet. I was starting to put out records, uh, New Groove Records. First joint was uh, this, this beat record called Powerhouse. And, and then I did this record called um, A Touch of Salsa, which sampled a Latin record, uh, Celia Cruz. So at that point, I was putting records out, and Louis had the record. And then, you know, Louis had spoke to Todd, and he was like, you know, I, I like this record. And he's like, yo, that's one of the, you know, I know who that is. And, and he introduced us. Um, at that point, you know, we were supposed to, Louis wanted to remix the record, and um, it never happened, actually, but we ended up, you know, uh, working together, and he had a drum machine in his house, and we, we took that and, and kept building on that, and then he was working on um, uh, Little Louis and Mark Anthony album at that, at that time, it was 1990, and um, he told me, come into the studio, you know what I'm saying, and then that's when I was in a room, like we just went to over here, and, and, and a lot of buttons, a lot of lights, and I was like, okay, <laughs> what do you want me to do, you know what I mean, but he was just like, look, just settle in, just watch, and, um, you know, if you have any ideas, be more than welcome to, to, to you know, and then that was it. And that was the birth of Masters at Work, the production team. So Todd Terry kind of is the link between the... Yeah, absolutely, you know, and, and actually before that, um, in 1987, he had did two records under Masters at Work, you know, um, but I, I made sure I told Todd, I said, you know, that name... I'm going to use it one day. I want it. Use it now. And, uh, you know, and then at, in 1990, that was the point where I said, okay, me and Louie had spoken. He was like, you know, let's let's do some. And it was a perfect name. And that was it. And and just really quickly, who is Todd Terry for the people who might not? Sorry. Who is Todd Terry for the people who might not have heard of wow, him? Wow. Um, Todd Terry, he's the one, I got to say, who took the Chicago house music. And, and and added hip-hop flavor to it. 
You know what I mean? A lot of his records in at that point were just hard. You know, and it, that's where the term hard house comes from before all this other stuff. You know what I mean? Um, because a lot of the, the, the sounds that he was sampling were from breakbeats. And and him being a hip-hop head as well, he, he infused that in the music. You know what I mean? And he was just sampling these these riffs. He he did um, you know, I was there when he did it, um, Party People, when he, he actually sampled Marshall Jefferson and made that track. You know what I mean? So it's Todd is 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 uh a very special person to me because he's he, just watching him and then introducing, you know, me and Louie together. And, you know, if not, it would have, this would have never happened. You know what I mean? And do you remember when you heard a touch of salsa for the first yes. time? <clears throat> Check. Yeah, you know, um, I was DJing, um, I started DJing professionally in 1985 and it started in the Bronx. I'm from the Bronx. You know, so Kenny being from Brooklyn, me from the Bronx, we were pretty far away from each other. But um, that's the record that brought us together. Because uh, after playing in the Devil's Nest, which was like the dance club version of Fever Records, the hip hop label. So Fever Records had Fever the Club and they also had the Devil's Nest. So, um, you know, I was a big neighborhood DJ in the early 80s into the mid 80s. And uh, they'd heard about me and they um, asked me if I wanted to be the resident. So it started there and then... A year later, I ended up playing in the city at uh, the old Fun House, which was a huge club in New York where Jelly Bean and a lot of our predecessors came from, you know, guys we learned from back in those days. So I was doing a lot of the New York clubs. Todd Terry would come up to me with like cassettes and I was like, dude, I don't play cassettes. You need to put that thing on a reel-to-reel. Because in those days, if you didn't play an acetate, you would play it on reel-to-reel. So I had a Technique reel-to-reel with a pitch control. Explain what acetate is. Okay. Uh, okay. Thank you. That's Break right. Down. I'm so sorry, man. <laughs> yeah. When you know when you master a record, you get this acetate, and that's what you get to approve before it uh, it, it becomes the master to make all the vinyl. So uh, it's like a thick piece of uh, what's it made of? It's it's a lacquer, and 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 it's metal inside, and it's sprayed with this lacquer, but you can't cut it, and it's very heavy. You know what I mean? And you could it's just to listen to. You know, as a reference. Yeah, so Todd in those days, you know, he couldn't make acetate. So I said, yo, you got to bring me a reel-to-reel. So he bring me a quarter-inch reel-to-reel, and I had a Technique reel-to-reel that was up on my right side. I had three turntables, a Yuri and uh, crossovers. What, so, what is a Yuri? A Yuri is... It looks uh, different than this Yeah, one. they're all knobs. You know, uh, Yuri's one of the, uh, actually, for me, the best mixer, sounding mixers ever made. Came out in what 1980 or something like that, you know, long time ago. Anyway, it was in all the it was in all the clubs in New York City. It's long time ago. So uh, Todd came back the following week and he brought me a reel to reel. I say, wow, okay. And that's when he brought me those records that Kenny said he was there for the making of, which was a lot of Todd Terry's early, you know, uh, uh, records. Uh, Royal House, House uh, Black Riot, you, Black Riot. You look up a lot of Todd's early stuff and um, on Sleeping Bag Records and all that. And, um, you know, from there, I started breaking a lot of Todd Terry's music. And Kenny was right, because Todd, what, what he did was, when house music first came out in 84, what, four, 85, around there, um, a lot of it came from Chicago. You know, there was also a, a, a style of music that was, it wasn't called house, but it was dance music in New York as well. It was called club music. Yeah, it was right. called club music. Uh, they just came up with the term house and all that. So it, it was all called house music. So, um... Todd Terry took those records and sampled them, like Marshall Jefferson, like a lot of stuff on DJ International and all these big house labels from Chicago. But he also sampled hip-hop breaks, like he would sample Public Enemy's drums, and then he would take an Africa Bambata electro record, you know, Planet Rock maybe or something, one of those early 80s. And he just combined all these sounds, and he made the sound a lot stronger. You know, At one point, all the Chicago artists were really upset at Todd. They were mad. Yeah, because he kind of took them out of, you know, <laughs> he started making these records that had a, a bigger sound. So a lot of his records were getting played uh, all over the place. So by that time, that's when Kenny was also making beats as well. And he had Dope Wax at the time. So I always knew about Kenny because I played his music as well. And when he did this record where he sampled a disco artist and a, and a Fania Records Latin artist and made this cool club groove out of it. You know, uh, I was really interested in, in what he was doing, and I said I wanted to remix it. So Todd and I developed a friendship at the same time that he was friends with Kenny, and uh, he would come up to the Bronx, and I said, uh, 
listen, introduce me to this guy, Kenny. Who is this guy? He goes, yeah, he works in a record shop and he makes a lot of beats and he makes a lot of uh, records uh, on a label called Dope Wax, his own label, on which is distributed by New Groove. So as I was collecting a lot of Kenny's music, I noticed that he, he loved hip hop. He loved the you know disco. He loved funk soul. I could hear it in his music, and I loved the variation and how he was into all these different styles. So when we finally got introduced, I never got to remix the record, but he started coming to the clubs little by little, and um, eventually I I started remixing a lot of records between '85 and '90, a lot of Warner Brothers stuff, uh, anything from Erasure to Debbie Gibson, who was like the Britney Spears of those days. I mean, I did a lot of records that were on the radio. But I also had this underground side of me that was doing the clubs in New York City. So um, I finally got signed to Atlantic Records, who I was doing a lot of work for. And it was Joey Carvello who signed me to the label. And I I was probably one of the early DJs signing like a major record deal. You know, because I was a DJ in clubs and I was starting to produce and remix records, but mostly remixing them. But he said, listen, I want to give you a shot to come in. You've done a lot of remixing. Why don't you come in and do this album? So the first thing I did was look for a singer, and in my clubs, there was uh, always a lot of singers hanging out, and there was this little skinny guy, and uh, his name was Mark Anthony, and um, he could sing his butt off. You know? He's still so, skinny, too. <laughs> so, you know, I brought him into the studio, and I said, listen, uh, I would love for you to be the singer on this and us be like a team. And I actually got that idea from my uncle, who's a famous salsa singer. His name is Hector Lavo, and his partner was Willie Colon. So we were trying to emulate that in the dance and pop world, let's say. So when I worked on that album, I had met Kenny at the same time. You know, he started coming to clubs and stuff. I said, listen, I'm working on this album, and I think you should come in and just do beats. You make a lot of great beats. Just make a lot of beats, and let me play over them. Let's just groove together, you know? And he ended up doing a lot of the beats on the album. But, you know, we gelled so well that, you know, after we were done with doing the album stuff, we would do these other tracks with just, like, me playing some keyboard riffs and bass lines and chords, and he would come up with these beats and... It just sounded like another thing, you know? So I said, okay, let's start taking this around. We started giving it to Frankie Knuckles, Tony Humphreys, Junior Vasquez. A lot of- Who were like big DJs at the time. time, Huge, Um, uh, still are. But um, when we were bringing the records, we said, wow, this is getting over in gay clubs, straight clubs, like black clubs, like all the different clubs, Latin clubs, they were getting into our music. It it had a kind of a universal appeal at the time. So we just went in and kept doing them. And then, since I was on Atlantic and did a lot of work with Warner Brothers as well, they were giving me a lot of those pop groups to do these rec- you know, to do remixes for. So I said, Kenny, you know, let's do these remixes together. But on the B-sides, you know, let's try to get our name out there and do these things that we're coming up with in the studio. That's different, you know? And then uh, I said, we got to call it something. I said, man, we got to call ourselves a name. We, you know, start, you know, because I really believed in Kenny and not as just as just a beat maker. I felt as a producer, like, you know, we can grow together. And we gelled so well that, you know, it just happened in the studio. It just happens like nothing. You got to just see it one day. So, you know, um, we started doing these remixes and we said, uh, and he says, well, Louie, I got this crew name called Masters at Work. And I said, isn't that thing that Todd Terry used? He goes, that was my crew name. I took it back. I said, Kenny, I love Masters at Work. I think that's perfect for us. So we, we had the name Masters at Work, and uh, we said, okay, well, we need to call these things on the B-side. We're gonna call, we have to call them Masters at Work dubs. We said, let's call them Masters at Work dubs. We did a few of those, and they blew up so big. Like on radio, they were playing these dubs in clubs everywhere. Like everywhere we went, they were playing them. And we were like, wow, and it just kept growing and growing. And next thing you know, bigger artists started calling us to do these things. I said, really? Madonna wants a Masters at Work dub? Like, everybody just cared about a dub. They didn't even care about their song, practically. You they didn't know, even like, want their voice on it. Yeah, they just, they like, just want a Masters at Work dub. <laughs> so I said, all right, let's take advantage of the situation and get our name out there. You know, for us, it was very important to, to uh, keep the sound fresh and always um, be creative with, with, with the drum. Uh, all the drum kits that Kenny came up with, for me, it was always like, Kenny... You need to come up with a lot of different drum kits. And then we just play on all different drum kits. You know what I mean? And, and that's how we kind of did it. And we started producing the records together and uh, putting them all together. And, um, you know, it, it, it started with those dubs. But that kind of swing also became synonymous, right? With not only masses at work, but also with like house music from New York City. Well, yeah, it got to a point where, you know, I, ca- 
I got more and more into it, the programming part of it. So I really, really got deep into it. So there was a lot of a lot of people at that time, a lot of producers were trying to emulate the sound. They were trying to figure out what I was using. They were, you know, they were really listening to to, to what was going on, you know, because it got really complex to a point where I was using actually two drum machines at one time, synced different time signatures and everything, you know what I mean? So... And why? Because I was just playing. The, I started to play a game with people. You know what I mean? It was just, it's like, yo, let's really go deep with it. You know. So you felt you had to to stay one step ahead. Well, yeah. You know, basically, basically, like like Louis said, you know, each record had his own kit. It wasn't like, you know, I could call up a a, a rack, and use a preset. You know what I mean? Every record, each kit was made. Yeah, and also, uh, as far as the synths, synths are concerned, it was all about finding that right sound. Like, if I would find the right sound, I could create a whole song out of it. You know what I mean? It'll just, it'll be the inspiration, that sound. So, for us, it was always being on top of it. I mean, we were working 18 hours a day, seriously, like every day. We didn't stop. Yeah, there was a point, there was a point in the, in the mid-90s where we would have two and three rooms going on at one time. You know, we was in studios bouncing from one room to the other. It, it was just crazy, you know. And and for the amount of music that came out, we turned down probably double that. You know, we couldn't do it all. Plus, it was just we just we just couldn't do it. You know what I mean? So it being at the studio all that time, you know, going home. For a couple of hours, you know, taking a shower and coming back. And then it's just like another record and another record and another record, you know. And But that's what it was, you know. And how did you make the choice? What to do and what to turn down? Well, basically, you know, we, we used to get a lot of demos. A lot of um, labels used to come through. And, and like Louis said, we had certain labels that we worked for a lot. So um, they needed a mix on something. And there had to be something that gave us that inspiration with a little hook, a little, you know, a line that we could make the dub out of. You know, later on, you know, we started doing full songs. And and then basically after we did the whole dub run, you know, we started bringing in musicians. We started bringing in different instruments into the music. And that's where it became more soulful. But we also brought in Latin to the music. We brought in Afro to the music. You know what I mean? We brought in disco, obviously jazz you know there was so many different steps because we were all playing those kind of records as djs so it was like we were putting it into the music and introducing the crowd to them sounds as well you know what i'm saying and yeah before we get to the later projects why do you think major labels at that time were so interested in like having underground remixes on their pop records they were selling records you know they were a lot of those records were selling a lot You know what I mean? The vinyl. There was no MP3s. There was no, you know, there was none of that. There was no CDs yet. There was cassettes and there was vinyl 12 inches. And overseas, they were selling them. And that's what DJs played. They played records. You know, a lot of DJs bought two. Sometimes they bought three, you know, you know, like myself. You know what I mean? But yeah, they was for the club, for the club and for the DJs. Yeah. And, you know, the UK was so big on dance music and the UK... You know, you make a dance record, it can go number one pop. And it could be a straight up house record, you know, like that we would do for the clubs. So, you know, that, that made a big difference. I mean, we, you know, when we started our label, we, we were like, okay, we're going to start our own label. We, we started selling like 130,000 pieces of vinyl. You know what I mean? It was big. You know, it was like, wow, you know, that's just our label selling that, that amount. You know what I mean? So imagine these labels. That it, you know, so the major labels saw that dance music you know was making some waves in the u.s it did set, get fairly some some radio play and some of it got a lot of attention the major labels started signing like 10 city or you know uh a lot of the different artists alternate who was on warner brothers you know but um you also had labels like strictly rhythm and nervous records who are the the big new york house labels that if you look them up you'll 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 hear a lot of history on this type of music And why do you think it was so big at that time in New York, that house sound on the radio, like major labels and Nervous Strictly being almost major labels themselves, right, in a way? And what happened? Like, Well, it was a thing to do, you know what I mean? Um, growing up, you either were on the street or you was doing records, you was DJing, 
you know what I'm saying? Or, you know, you were going to college and stuff like that. So th those were the those were the areas we, you know what I mean? So um, a lot of the kids wanted to DJ. They started to DJ, then they wanted to make records. Then they wanted to play keyboards. Some wanted to play drums. You know, and, and at that time, was a, it was a good point, a good period, because, um, you know, all these, these labels were looking for the, the next young kid that was doing the record. You know what I mean, and and that was a lot of us. And at at that point, you know, a lot of people that were actually started in their bedroom, started you know doing mobile parties. They started to make records. You know what I mean, um, but they were right there. They was right there waiting to cut a check to get to get that track. You know what I'm saying. And then little by little, some some of the guys had big records. You know what I mean, and made decent money. You know, and and that's how we started going overseas. We started traveling. You know, and it just kept going from there and there. And yeah, going overseas, you guys seem to be pretty much a product of New York City. How did it feel to you when you went over to, the, for instance, UK for the first time to play there? Even before that, when you get, you know, when you get a publishing check and it's from somewhere you can't even pronounce, that's the, that's the, that's the most craziest feeling to, to say, man, my record got played there. And that, that was the thing about, that time period of how far the records traveled. You know what I'm saying? Then that's when promoters started to call you. We want you to come to our city to come play our club. And I'm like, wow, we're going there, you know? And then together we went separately. We went, you know, but Louis went actually before me, you know, um, in the 80s, in the late 80s. But now nah, it's, it's, it's crazy to actually say to yourself, wow, I made a profession, I'm, you know, I've traveled all these countries just playing music. You know what I mean? Something that you love doing, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, I think between the major labels putting out our remixes and then we had these outlets like Strictly Rhythm and Nervous Records. I mean, they were right in our hometown. So we'd be working in the studio and I'll call Michael Weiss at like four in the morning. Yo, you got to come right now. That's how excited everybody was at the time. And Michael Weiss would be in our studio at 4.30 in the morning to listen to what we just made because we were so excited about it or Gladys Pizarro, Strictly Rhythm. So we had those outlets, and they had a lot of contacts around the world, and they licensed a lot of their music to the UK, Italy, France, and everywhere else. So that gave exposure to a lot of our music in those countries. And then once we started going out, when we first went to the UK together as Masters at Work, it was like pandemonium, man. It was just like everybody wanted to know who these two guys were that were making so much music, you know, and the same with the other countries. So. You know, as you go out and do one gig, you get two more, three more, whatever, and it just kept growing. And it was it was very different back then too, because there was no social media, no Facebook, none of that. So nobody knew what we looked like. You know what I'm saying? We just show up to the club. That's my as it work. Yeah, you know, kid with the hat, and the other dude with the hat. You know what I mean? And and that was it. It was just you know, it was just like the two hats. You know. <laughs> But um, it's crazy how far things have gotten, you know, where you could actually, you're able to reach so many people, but you can't at the same time, you know what I mean? Because you, you got to be able to, to touch the people that are into you and into your sound. But back then, yeah, there was none of that. There was just a PR person that you used to hire to, to promote your, your stuff and, and your music and stuff like that, you know? And... Getting a little bit away from the remixes, um, when did you start to turn out original productions as Masters at Work? Well, it started in, uh, when we were creating those tracks for Debbie Gibson and everybody else, there was always something extra we had. And um, at that same time, in 1991, I believe, we released a record on um, Cutting Records, which we put out our first Masters at Work album. So that same year, we started remixing. We got to tell them the truth, though. Isn't that the truth? Some of it. What did I lie? Well, no, 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 no. He didn't lie. He didn't lie. But pretty much, while we were doing those remixes, there was tracks that were actually too good to hand in. So we kept those songs for us, and then we we still did good stuff. You know what I mean? We still we still did great records for everybody. But there were certain records that we knew, nah, this can't because they're just it's gonna get lost. It's gonna get buried somewhere. And we started accumulating these tracks. All right, get <laughs> Okay, there you go. <laughs> yeah, so then we made a deal with uh, Cutting Records, and uh, we put out the first album. And um, 
we came up with this idea because, you know, we loved hip hop, we loved house. So for us, it was about, okay, let's take one side of the vinyl and put out a hip hop record. And the other side of the of, uh, vinyl will cater to our house crowd. So that's when we started doing those records like the High Dance and um, uh, One Blood, what is it? Uh, Blood Vibes. Blood Vibes. You know, and, you know, at that time, I used to play in clubs and play a lot of hip hop, reggae, house, disco, just the whole spectrum, you know. And um, so that influence came out in our music. And that's when we started doing that on Cutting Records and we created that album. Then we wanted to do our first, we, I mean, from doing all those dubs, we said, man, we need to put a vocal, a song, so that people can identify with our dubs, not just, you know, uh, one little hook. We tried to do a song on these, these type of tracks. And that's when we did I Can't Get No Sleep with India back in 91. And uh, that was a, a really big, a pivotal point for us because we started doing songs on our style of music. And we touched upon it before the lecture very briefly i just thought it's it was out of yeah fun to start up using other monikers than masters at work for you guys as well but there has been some issue right with the masters at work name and cutting records yeah we you know it, it was crazy because at that point i was signed as kenny dope but performing as masters at work but then we were masters at work It's like they had us wrapped up crazy, but I was like, I'm still doing records. You know, forget about that. So I did all these Kenny Dope records, but we were kind of stuck as masters at work because we couldn't move on because the name was still there. And it was like, wait a minute, that's our production team. That's our DJ team. You know what I'm saying? Then we, it's just, it was crazy. So basically, you know, to get out of the deal, you know, we ended up leaving the record there. And which we could re-record it at any at any point, which we never did. And I just kept doing my solo records, and then we, you know, we we, we moved on, you know, pretty much. But they 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 wrapped us up pretty hard. And, and it was what was crazy about the whole situation is is that they were like, look, you know, let's work together, and it was like this whole family thing. But meanwhile, they had us locked, you know, and it, it was it was bad, but. You know, you learn from it. You know what I mean? And, and you, that's that's one thing. Whoever's you guys doing music, you know, make sure you get your legal stuff straight and you know what you're signing and all that. Because even though I didn't really, I didn't care what I was doing at that point, but you still can be in serious trouble if you do sign those paperwork, you know, sign the paperwork and you're stuck and you can't move on and they're taking all your music or everything that you do, they own for forever. 50 years, you know what I'm saying? Which is, you know, you're doing these tracks and, and, and you, be, you, you get a hit, and we're talking major money. Like, you could, you could be doing something and, and, and you think, ah, oh, it's, it's just a throwaway track or whatever. Next thing you know, that's in the Madagascar movie or it's in this, and next thing you know, the label made $30 million on this one track that you thought it was a throwaway track. You know what I'm saying? So always value what you do, you know? So always get a music lawyer? Before yes, you please get a music lawyer. I mean, you know, get a lawyer in the entertainment business. I mean, I think it's, uh, and it's important, uh, you know, you got to read what you sign, you know what I mean? You just can't trust that other person too. You should read it. You got to, you know, you got to know what you're signing. I mean, we were definitely stuck there. And after 10 years, we said, look, we can't take this anymore. So Masters at Work was locked down for 10 years on cutting records. We had to give them that album. And I think even uh, some money, we did something there that we gave them everything, let them own what they owned. And we just, we had so much other stuff. We were like, fine, we'll just, you know, we'll move on. But we have our name. That's what we needed, our name. I just made sure that there was a re-record clause in the contract that we were getting out of. Because pretty much all you got to do is change the snare drum and you're done. The record's re-recorded. You know what I'm saying? Well, you're so, supposed to re-record the vocal too, but forget about that. This, you know, this, yeah, we'll keep it straight. You know, but nah, that's that's basically what it was, and and we got out of the deal. So at that, we never revisited the records. You know what I mean? But we always can. But the the thing is, is that they only have the mixed down versions of the originals. We have the master tapes, which we could actually dissect and the vocals and the music and all that kind of stuff, and always remix it again. You know what I mean? So. Well, that's why we came up with all these monikers. We were like, listen, we have to come up with these group names because we can't use masses at work. So 
I mean, if you know of, of our records in those days, we had groups like Hard Drive, The Bucketheads, Soul Fusion, oh goodness, we New Eureka Soul. I mean, we came up with all these other names and Can we started making go, music under those go. things. So, so, yeah, so, um, but then all those monikers, we, we created styles for, the, for them. All those aliases, we created styles of music for them. So it kind of was in a way good because we got to expand a lot of the music that we were making. You know, so if you went to Hard Drive, you know, you're getting a certain vibe. If you're going to Bucketheads, you know, you're getting a certain vibe. Or Ken Lu or whatever. You know? Also, also the, the other meaning behind that, too, is that you wanted, we did so much music that we wanted to flood the record stores. So when you went to the record store on Friday, there was all these records by different groups, but it was the same people doing them. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just like flooded. And we learned that from Todd. Todd used to do that all the time. Yeah. Because Todd thing, Todd's thing was, he was like, I'm going to this label, I'm going to get a check over here. I'm going to this label, I'm going to get a check over here. They're going to have this name, I'm going to get this name over here. And, and that was the thing. And then the same thing, it was like you went to the store, you had Black Riot, Royal House, Orange Lemon, all these crazy, the craziest names, but they were just different projects, you know? So you have to wrap the sandwich to sell it a few times? Well, it's crazy. In those days, I guess we had, you know, we had uh, some marketing going on there, you know, whether it was Masters at Work dubs and all these aliases we created. And I mean, we definitely were kind of thinking about it, but not thinking about it. We were young, you know, we were just making so just much music. It, you know? yeah. it was just like, they were coming in one after the other. We would make three or four songs or tracks in one night. And, you know, when you look at those tracks and you dissect them one night, it could have been the nervous track which is a really popular song of ours by New York and Soul, or it could have been Beautiful People or Deep Inside. Like, those things would come up in one night, like music of that caliber, which to this day has been licensed over and over again and, and, and has become like club classics, I guess, to a lot of uh, the DJs out there. So what's the story behind Deep Inside? And who painted the cover? <laughs> Well, it's funny because uh, first I want to say thank you to all you DJs for keeping that record alive. I mean, that was done 20 years ago. And um, sometimes I had a keyboard in my house and I would play grooves and I had this new road sound. It was really, really nice sound. And um, I came up with this riff, this keyboard riff. And if you listen to a song called Beautiful People by Barbara Tucker, that riff at the top of the song is what I was playing over and over again. So I had this idea for a song and then I went to... Uh, India, Lem Springsteen, and Derek Whitaker, and they all came up with, with this song called Beautiful People on top of that groove. You know, at that time I was doing a party called the Underground Network from 92 to 96, and uh, that was a very uh, pivotal point in house music as well in New York, because I was, you know, that was our base, right, for our music, you know, and for everybody else. I mean, you would go to that club and the same night you'd have Armand Van Helden, Todd Terry, Kenny Dope, you know, I'd be DJing, Francois K, like everybody was hanging out in this club on Wednesdays. It was industry night, you know what I mean? Labels, DJs, producers, artists, everybody. Was, and dancers, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, uh, when, I, when, I did the, uh, when we did the Beautiful People song, at that time I had been working with Mark Anthony, it was 93, we, we were doing the, we had the When the Night Is Over, and he was hanging out with a, with a young kid who was a DJ, and he says, listen, um, I got this kid, his name is Eric, and... He just wants you to come to the studio. Louis, please, just go there. I mean, he would be so happy. It's not a big studio. It's like in a little bedroom or whatever. So I went to the studio. I went to go meet him and see him. And he says, man, would you like to use it to do something here? And I said, wow, okay. So I had this song or whatever. I had this reel, you know, when we had recorded it and stuff. Uh, I, I, for somehow I got the, uh, that little deep inside hook from the Beautiful People song. So... Um, He engineered it. That's why it doesn't sound as, as, as powerful as the master that works that we were doing in the studio because we were doing it in these big studios and we were doing great stuff together and everything. And, you know, Kenny, you know, it was, it was just a whole very raw kind of thing. I didn't expect it to do what it did. So I played these keyboard riffs. I played that bass line and all that. And I sampled this deep inside hook. And um, he engineered it. And um, his name was Eric Murillo. So uh, if you read the record, it says Eric Murillo is the engineer on this record, which he was. So um, I gave the record to Strictly Rhythm, and then I said to myself, Lynn, why don't I put this out to kind of introduce Barbara Tucker's voice before the song? Because the song was already done, Beautiful People. So uh, 
put the song out on Strictly Rhythm, and that little track, I spent like an hour and a half in his house. It's funny because Kenny and I, some of the biggest records we've had, like the bucket heads that he's done, you know, uh, these sounds and all that, those records we made in like an hour and a half, and they became some of our biggest records ever. And, and um, you know, they're not the big lush productions. They're like just like raw club tracks, you know? So uh, the song did very well, and, and uh, it still lives on, I guess. And um, I'm really grateful for that. Really happy that you guys love it, and I appreciate it. And um, I mean, you don't have to, you know, work in a huge studio with tons of money. You just have to have a few pieces that you know very well and you feel comfortable in. And, and it's about the choice of sounds. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, you guys put together records in different ways now, and it's it's uh, you know, you have more access to things than what we've had. I mean, we've had to spend time just stretching a song right like you're stretching yeah. a vocal like took hours let me tell you something i, I could do in ableton now it'll, it'll take me 10 minutes used to take four days before when we used to do a remix you know you would get these vocals and they were 100 beats per minute and you had to make them a club tempo and our engineer used to line by line it took hours and actually, one of one of our assistants is back there too. And actually, he's, his name is Yaz. Engineer. Engineer now, you know. But he started with us. And say what's up to Yaz, everybody. Yeah, stand up. Yaz, stand up. He's shy. He's shy. Yaz, stand up. Yaz. Yeah, you know, Yaz. Yaz was. He came in the studio and he used to throw the garbage out and go to the store and get us stuff. And he was, you know, he went to school and he wanted to learn and he would he would spend his... When we left, he was in there learning all the equipment, you know, and, and little by little, he's, he's a master at programming, you know what I mean? Pro Tools, he's a genius with that. But yeah, you know, so like Louis said, you know, now, and I think, I, I just thought about when, when he was saying that you can do it, it's so crazy because I'm just it just flashed. I just flashed in my mind like how much stuff is available now and how we used to do things before. You know what I mean? With the programs and you know, I have so much stuff in my laptop. Back in the days it was three hundred thousand dollars in a studio. You know what I'm saying? Or like what's in the studio here. We had a studio like that in the city. But pretty much you could move with, you know, you could do tracks in your laptop, you know? And obviously, you know, they're not going to sound like a, a professional studio, but it's your, 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 you, you create your stuff. You create your tracks, and you can always take it to a big room and mix it. But, but it's, it's, it's crazy, you know, how, how uh, technology has, how far has come. So you had your own studio, or did you, like, always rent studio time in well, places? I always had a room. Like, once I, I got my money together, I always had a studio in my house. Because before I went into the studio, I never used to like to waste time in the studio. So I would prepare the, the basic skeleton of what we were going to work on. We spoke on the phone either the night before or in the morning. He was at the keyboard. I was on the phone. And he was like, look, I, I got this progression or whatever. I would make the beat, record it, take the discs, go to the studio, print the beat, record it to tape, and then he would add his stuff to it. And that was the process. You know, um, but throughout the 90s, we, we used um, battery studios, access up, a, a lot of studios in New York. But um, our management actually built a studio that we ended up buying later on because um, we, wanted a, we wanted a club sound. You know, we wanted subs in, in, in the room and we wanted a club sound because we were making club records. So we wanted to be powerful, you know, but that became the, the more home base, you know, where... A lot of people came through there, you know, from uh, Move to Swing to, like, Eric Marola, like you said, to even Dex Dexter Jenkins, who did, like, Michael Jackson, Rodney Jerkins, who did a lot of stuff, too, on, on the urban side. So there was a lot of people that came through there, and they were friends of ours, you know what I mean? They were all wanted to see what we were doing and stuff like that. So it was a good, definitely a good, good time, you know? And on the art of that uh, hard drive, I... Don't remember who did it, but um, he did a good job. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know, I don't remember. That was a really unique color. Yeah. And um, yeah, you mentioned New Yorkian soul as a 
project. How did that start? Well, yeah, um, pretty much what actually happened, we were, we were going a lot to England. We were doing this, um, this party, Southport, which actually is like a weekender. And they have like five rooms. At that time, it was all different, different music. And we had actually walked into this room and it was all jazz dancers. Everybody was in suits, tap shoes, all the women were dressed, dresses. And it was just like, they were playing like these really fast jazz records. And just the, the whole vibe of that room was just crazy. It was like we went into another world. And at that point it was like, I looked at Louis, I was like, wow, this is crazy, you know? We gotta try to make some records that are not four on the floor. Like, let's let's kind of break off of that rhythm for a minute. And when we came home, that's what we did. We were working on a remix for Warner Brothers. It was for Ultra Nate. And um, all I kept hearing from Kenny all night that night was like, Louis, I'm tired of doing house. I'm tired of doing house. I heard that over and over. I said, okay, we're not going to do house. Let's do something different. <laughs> so um, from there, I got a little tired as well. I mean, I was playing on all these records. And it's crazy because a lot of, especially a lot of the generations of today, all the records they like from us are not the big, lush productions that we do. Like... You know, of course, you have the New York and Soul fans, but you have, especially people from the techno scene and um, a lot of the uh, progressive type of uh, club sounds, they love our early music. Like when I was playing those keyboards, those simple lines and everything, but it just works in clubs, I guess, you know? And um, at that point, you know, when we started doing New York and Soul and we wanted to take it to the next level, we started working with a lot of musicians. We had already done a few things with musicians since that time, but um, we really took it to the next level and... I got really spoiled with all these great musicians that I kind of... He don't want to play no more. <laughs> he still doesn't want to play. Like, play, man, play. That's, that's, they want the raw, the raw tracks, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Come on, get, get on them. But, you know, there definitely is something special when he's on a drum machine and I'm on a keyboard. It's like we come up with really... We did some things yesterday, though. Yeah, so. yeah we did, we did. But um, that song for me was... Uh, it was definitely a magic moment for Masters at Work, you know, when we had Funk Master Flex call us and say, yo, I love this Nervous track, we were like, what? Right? He was playing on a Hot 97. That was the weirdest call ever, you know? And I know Flex for a long time, and I'm like, you do? you like, all right. And then Ronnie Size, Goldie, they were calling us. Yo, we love this record, Nervous track. What? Giles Peterson. You know, it got all these DJs from different genres of music. And all these, you know, they're amazing DJs in in. in the music they make and everything, and then we they reached out for this song. We're like, wow! I mean, we we can't believe uh, everybody was into it like that. So we definitely knew there was something special there, you know. And would you say it's a natural progression for you as producers that you always try to improve instead of yeah, being yeah. content with like what? Nah, you definitely. That was that was the that was the definitely the mood back then. It, if things if we didn't like it, it wouldn't come out. Um, we were always pushing, pushing to be because. We a lot of we had eyes a lot of eyes on us at that point too. You know, everybody was actually biting a lot of the stuff too. You know what I mean? They were actually trying to do exact like we had certain guys out there that were doing the same record and doing it for a different artists and, and, and a different label. You know what did I mean? So ever, I was always pushing forward, always. And did you ever call them about it? Oh yeah. <laughs> and they felt guilty or apologetic uh, I don't want to get into that <laughs> that was ugly that was my ugly days you know and just wilding out you know well just imagine you work really hard on something you create this thing that doesn't sound like anything else and then somebody goes and does a remix for a major artist and they take your same groove for like were, a major artist and, and you're they like they were Damn. getting the props for it that was that's what was crazy you know, about so it you know what I mean we had a lot of that in the 90s but Imitate. you know we just kept moving and Start, we just said, let's just stay He wants creative. to know who it is. No, 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 no. No, I just wanted to say that imitation <laughs> is the highest form of flattery. That's no, cool. No, cool, and that's but, true. And that's true. Yeah, but we were, it wasn't happening. But it was, a, to the, it was to the note. It was to the note. I mean, if somebody takes an idea you have and takes it to another level or another place, and you can hear what your idea was in there, but when you're doing note for note, riff for riff, bass line for bass line, chord for chord, on another song... I mean, you know. Yeah, things like that happen all the time, and, and they still happen. And, and, and I know where people get certain things from when I hear, you know. And a lot of 
mainstream records, radio records. You know what I'm saying? And a lot of the the guys that are that are doing that are current right now doing stuff. You know, we inspired them, but they've inspired us too. You know, which is cool, but not what happened back then. That was just like blatantly the same song. You know what I'm saying? And it was just like, okay, you know. So if you sample, be creative. That's the bottom line. I sampled to death, so that was my thing. You know what I mean? I'm not even in the front. Like all my drum sounds were samples, every last one of them. You know, until now, until like the last two years. You know, I'm, I'm you know, I have a drummer now, but it's just like. All my stuff was sampled, but I always made it something else. You know what I'm saying? Oh, I always made a, a different song, you know, or arranged it in a certain way that made a new song. You know, like 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 the Bucketheads record. If you play the original song, it doesn't do that. You know what I mean? It, it the, the the way the hooks are laid out, the way the anticipation is with the whole horn intro and all that. You know, which which actually was a, a mistake. You know, which ended up to be that long ass loop was me missing the, the, the sequence. And it sounded cool, so I was like, all right, let it run one more time. And then it was like, nah, let it run one more time. And next thing you know, I think that whole intro is four minutes long, but that was the whole thing in the club that had everybody crazy until finally, when them horns dropped, it's like, oh, okay. And the record was 14 minutes long, but it was actually a mistake. You know what I'm saying? So that's something else that is a lesson for whoever's doing tracks that the mistakes work. You know what I'm saying? Um, there's a lot of mistakes in, those, in, in, in the classic records that we all love. There's bad notes, there's everything, you know, but it's just something about the chemistry that was going on with the band and how they were playing it. So I always kept that, that kind of stuff too. You know, back then, a lot of the mixes, well actually, I would say 90% of the mixes were done live, me and him on the board doing mutes Through, through the whole record, rides and everything. So that's why I felt felt like that. Like there was a lot of things coming in and out sporadically. You know? So it wasn't a screen arrangement. Nah, not at all. No, yeah, it was. It wasn't. We were doing that right on. You know, those eight minutes that we went down, we were doing live stuff. He might mute the kick. I might have brought up a keyboard, faded it up. You know, of course, you you uh, program you the tweak it and stuff like the that. Delays, but yeah, the, the body it. of it was yeah. done live. And. Um, Getting back a little bit to the musician thing, because the last song we heard was the Nervous track, but that uh, developed into the New York and Soul project with like some legendary musicians. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit about how that came together from this very basic track. Well, basically, at that point, like Louis said earlier, we was at that point where it was like, well, I was at that point. I was like, no more four on the floor, please. Let's do something else, you know. Um, and that spawned, you know, the different, the broken beat style. But also, we wanted to do something that, you know, all the musicians that we came up on growing up, we wanted to incorporate that vibe and bring that out, you know. And that's how that whole project developed, you know. So we had Roy Ayers, we had um, George Benson, Tito Puente, Eddie Palmieri, India, Jocelyn Brown. Um, the Salsa Orchestra, Vince Montana. So there was a lot of a lot of people that we brought together that we grew up on musically that I didn't even realize it until the photo shoot for that album. You know what I mean? Because we were working so it, we were like we're like robots, man. We just go in, record, do what do what we do and keep it moving. But it's like once we did that project, uh, you know, what was it like a year and a half, a year? A year and a half. And we did it. It sounded great. Label signed, do videos, the whole thing, artwork. And we did the photo shoot. And I'm like, and I'm looking around just like you guys are sitting here. And it's like, wow, we have Eddie Palmieri, Tito, Benson. These are all our heroes in one room. And we put it together. So that was a, that was a, it brought ears. Yeah, that was just a, a crazy, crazy feeling to 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 think that two DJs put this project together. You know what I'm saying? Not musically trained at all. Learn bars by DJing, by playing records. You know what I'm saying? Learn song structures from playing records. So that was that was really deep for me, you know what I mean? And that's why that project was so special, definitely. Were you self-conscious when you went into the studio with them? 
Ah, we just did it. We just did it. It was just, you know, they didn't know what was going on. They didn't know. They were just, they, I remember, um, I don't remember who it was, but somebody's like, that's in the wrong key. That that doesn't fit with that. And th- I'm like, we got this. Don't worry. It's going to it's gonna fit. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> And then when they heard it back, they were like, we never envisioned what you guys were doing. And we would just bring in different different artists and record and do the tracks, you know. Benson, who was amazing, who came in and did his thing, went to church, came back, and was like a whole different record. <laughs> Seriously, because he played to a whole different beat. And what he played was so inspiring that I was like, Louis, this beat is whack. Like, I got to change it. It's George Benson. Like, and I did the whole beat over. And yeah. he came and back. And the music. And the music, too. Yeah, and the music. And it was just like, mm-hmm. hi, three hours. Was I mean, he he was probably the only one that that yeah, no. uh, gave us a little feeling of intimidation when we yeah, met him, yeah, yeah. because it was all about we had to have this meeting. It was we had to go to an a office. Label. <laughs> we went. Uh, Tommy the Puma, who's you know one of the greatest producers of all time, uh, he told us you know because he's the one that produced George Benson, Miles Davis, everybody, and he said, "Listen, uh, you have to come meet George Benson so you can play him your idea and tell him what you want to do." So we went in and he just looked at us like. Like, what are these two guys going to play me? Okay. <laughs> you know, we played him the track, and uh, we just explained to him what we were doing. We played him the other stuff because they were more finished. And he says, okay, I'll do it. I'll go in. And that was it. Uh, but when he first came in, we were like, damn, it's George Benson, you know? Well, he's going to look at our track and say, what is that? Some, like, little two-chord thing or whatever, you know? <laughs> you know, uh, but, you know, he gave us the shot. He came in, and once he came in, it was magic, man. It was like we had like two or three days with him, right? And it was just letting him lose something, you know. He would be exercising. And he said it was like a scale exercise or something, right? Remember that? And we said, yo, we loved that. We made that the intro to You Can Do It. If you listen to New York and so on, you hear George Benson playing by himself. That's him exercising, like in one shot, doing that whole piece. But we loved it. We thought it was beautiful. And then uh, that was it. When he came back, he says, that's not the record I played on. That's not the track. I said, yeah, man, you inspired us. We went in and this is what we did. And, you know, he sang a lot of hooks all over the place and we put that all together and it became You Can Do It, you know. And, um, you know, but for when we first went in, it was a little intimidating for sure because George Benson is the only one we didn't know. Like, we knew Roy Ayers. We had met him and we had a relationship with him. We Tito Puente, Eddie Palmieri. Yeah, we worked with a lot of the artists before. Yes. He was the only one that we didn't know. Yeah. But it was like, Whatever. Let's go. But you know, it was it was after that <laughs> project when we started getting like calls from like Janet Jackson and Luther Van. Like everybody was like reaching out BB Winans because of New York and Soul, and you know, it was a great opportunity for us because we got to show what we could do as producers, and and uh, that's my favorite project that we've ever worked on. And yeah, then let's <laughs> masters at work. Thank you, thank you. Hey, this is Jordan Rothline again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, I just wanted to take a minute to tell you a little bit about the Red Bull Music Academy. The whole thing is a world-traveling series of music workshops and events. If you want to find out more, check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. Also, if you liked what you heard on this podcast and you're not already subscribed, please go for it and consider rating us while you're at it. It really helps other people discover the podcast. Finally, there's a whole world of other great music programming like this to check out at redbullradio.com. That's all for now. Thanks for listening.